Dad, why do people have tombstones when they die? When I'm dead, just roll me up and smoke me, you know? You're listening to Rome Schooled. Well, I always said that everybody should have their names someplace. Mostly, I would like it to be said of me that I was a good guy. This is Rome Schooled. It's a new show about the pleasure of finding things out in person with the curiosity of a six-year-old. Dad, it's two two six-year-olds. Okay, my twin daughters. And me with a skeptical yet tireless demand for real answers and real connections. So each episode starts with a question from my six-year-old girls, Dana and Vern, and then goes deep on a topic. A while back, I noticed that we were spending a lot of time on the couch looking up answers to our questions. Kids have a lot of them. I'd have my smartphone in my hand or my iPad, and we'd go down a wormhole. And those amazing, addictive wormholes that we go down, they're great, but you don't get context, and you don't get human contact. And I have this gut feeling that this is where we really figure stuff out. We wanted to be immersed. So I looked in the paper, and I bought an RV an old Toyota Winnebago. It's kind of strange looking, like a turtle. It's got a tiny front and a huge back end that says warrior. Zena, the warrior princess. So now we're on the road roaming as much as we can. In this, our first episode, we begin at the end. This is a traveling treatise on memorialization. Vern had asked about tombstones, so we're going to drive east towards Chicago, where we will find and talk to the people who make more tombstones than just about anybody. It's a family business there. Also, a monument to Crazy Horse and a monument in sound. Two funerals in Philadelphia and a visit to the city nicknamed the City of Death, Colma, California. So, girls, are we ready to do this? You sure you want to go and miss school? Yeah! All right, let's go find out. Let's go find out! In this business, we do say the the tombstones are for the living. It, It isn't the deceased person, you know, it isn't for them. So my name is Lisa Troost, and I am the fifth generation of the Peter Troost Monument Company in Hillside, Illinois. We started with one location. Uh, Today there's 26, and right now we're standing out in our shop. In this wing, we have uh, a sculptor who does bas-reliefs, full round sculptures. Um, A lot of these markers that we're standing near right now, you see have portraits on them. We etch the likeness into the granite from the photo that's provided. We have six sandblast rooms here, uh, two up front that are manual blasts. A lot of the tools of the trade are still fairly basic. There's an X-Acto knife, a T-square, there's a French curve over there. Okay, but why stone? I think the reasons for commemorating someone in stone vary a lot. A common theme, though, is these people that have died was somebody who was incredibly important in our lives, did a lot for us, and to have them pass away and then do nothing doesn't feel right. Um, Also, when someone dies, a lot of their stuff, the tangible stuff, goes away. And those tangible things are often what people attached 
a memory to, a home, a collection, China, whatever it might be, those things get distributed amongst family members, personal belongings get sold, homes get sold, and sometimes there's just not much left that those of us who are left behind can identify with to say, what did this person mean to me? So what did this person mean to me? Is a tombstone about my relationship with someone who's gone? Or is it about future relationships between the deceased and future generations of people not even conceived yet? Well, for starters, let's assume I've lost someone and I'm shopping for a tombstone. I'm going to spend a pretty large amount of money on the tombstone itself. This will help me and my family, right? It's not to say that monument speeds up or prolongs the grieving process. It doesn't necessarily. But usually when somebody has a memory of some someone that's fond, it isn't anything you want to just wipe away. So what if we don't know? What if they didn't want a stone? What if we have no idea how this person would have wanted to be remembered? Life is short. Find things that make you happy. And if doing something like this is something that brings some comfort, some ease, some peace of mind, some joy, so be it. I always like the monuments that we do that are not the traditional ones that you see in the cemetery. We did a memorial about a year ago for a young child uh, that incorporated a Duplo, that's the toddler version of Legos, a Duplo building board into the memorial. We had it cast in bronze, and the Duplo bricks can actually be built on the board. I think that's the only memorial we ever made here where when I saw it, I got choked up. I couldn't have memorialized them any better. Do you mind if I ask you what you want your tombstone to say? My dad and I share a favorite epitaph that was a man of integrity. For me, I kind of vacillate between something like a devoted mother, a loving wife, and optimistic until the end. And then the other one is, for God's sakes, brush your teeth and go to bed. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. I think maybe the latter is more fitting, should tomorrow be my last day. So, stone memorials. Let's go large. We're driving, and the question of memorials comes up in a totally different direction. What's that? What was the name of that man? Oh, that was Crazy Horse, Neil Young and Crazy Horse. Well, why do they call themselves that? Is the wizard rocking or crazy or what? Yeah, it's pretty rocking, but I'm not sure why they call themselves that. Well, it just so happens that we heard about a group of people in South Dakota carving a memorial out of stone, the largest in the world, in honor of Crazy Horse. We heard that there was more to the memorial than meets the eye, so we went. 1,200 miles later, the girls are holding hands with Chinese tourists, Harley-Davidson couples from St. Louis, quite a few hipsters, and what appear to be tattoo-covered Czechoslovakian strippers doing a Native American folk dance. And as a backdrop is this mountain whose massive peak is the face of Crazy Horse. It's the world's largest stone monument, and 
in its morning shadow, an entire town. It's got its own zip code. We wanted to learn about Crazy Horse, so we set up a meeting with Mary Bordeaux. She's the curator and director of cultural affairs at the Indian Museum of North America at Crazy Horse. The Crazy Horse Memorial Foundation has the Indian University of North America. Students up to the age of 21 take a full load of classes, so they get their first semester of college done and they get a part-time job. As I'm listening to her talk, I do feel like I'm visiting a university. There's a library across the hall, people upstairs are packed into this huge museum, and these people are from around the world. We talk for over an hour, though with no mention of the giant stone monument. Uh, and I start to wonder, are we in the right place? Uh, or is the stone memorial, that thing that we're looking at, is that some other business up the street? Lauren Ebert is the director of media and public relations, and she explains. We are in the right place. She starts to tell us about Korczak Drukowski, the Polish sculptor who designed the memorial, and the man who became his friend, pen pal of sorts, and then hired him to do this sculpture, Chief Standing Bear. Korczak Drukowski was a Polish sculptor. He won the 1938 New York State's World Fair, and that's how Chief Henry Standing Bear actually came to find him. Standing Bear had been watching as, just up the road, another sculptor named Borglum had begun work on a very large stone sculpture. Standing Bear wrote to Korchak and said, I would really like you to come out and create this sculpture. I don't think Borglum is the only one who can do a grand sculpture, uh, and I would like the white man to know that the red man has great heroes also. So just up the road, about 20 minutes or so, Borglum got a head start by about 20 years. But his mountain sculpture was never finished and was eventually left in its unfinished state. That's just the heads, and millions of people have come to see them. This is Mount Rushmore. Crazy Horse? Well, it's also unfinished, but work is still going on. Korchev's children and grandchildren are still working on that memorial. You can see it. There's a tour bus. But in all this, why so big? The head alone is 88 feet. The horse's head, over three times that. It dwarves Mount Rushmore. But why? Why so big? Korchak really kind of said it best himself. The story of the Native American is an epic story, and he wanted to create a monument that was as epic came out here, lived in a tent for the first year or so, and started work on the monument within that same year as well. And then Korczak falls in love with one of his assistants. And they go on to have 10 children together at Crazy Horse. I feel like Ruth and Korchak were this like massive love story that just happened out of thin air. Ruth was quite a bit younger than Korchak, and she was in the Fife and Drum Corps in Connecticut that had gone out and started raising funds. When she found out that he was coming out here, well, that Fife and Drum Corps kind of followed to help raise funds out here. Through the process of building a house and building the 741-step staircase up the mountain, Ruth and Korchak fell in love and had 10 kids, and most of the kids still work here, have worked here, and we have grandkids now on the project, and yeah. 
So a Polish sculptor, Korczak, and a great Indian chief, Standing Bear, have a vision. And the sculptor falls in love. Children are born, families grow, and this corner of South Dakota becomes a cross-cultural mecca, a thriving, bustling center, all in memory of Crazy Horse? Who, who was Crazy Horse, and why is this memorial all in his name? Uh, you know, I tend to not think about um, Crazy Horse, the person, you know, because as Lakota people, we were a humble people, that we didn't memorialize people in this way. But I do appreciate the mission of preserving and celebrating the living heritage of the Native people of North America. I mean, we have, what, 1.2 million visitors a year, and to have the possibility to change their view on who Native people are is phenomenal. That's why I'm here, and if that means supporting a, a monument to a leader that was an important person to our people, um, you know, I'm all for it. My goal is really to show that Native people are alive and are thriving, um, and that we're not just all long hair, feathers, and sunsets. You know, that <laughs> we're so much more than that. Who gets to decide um, how you're going to be remembered? I just hear people saying that he didn't get to decide. Yeah, I've heard that too. Well, Crazy Horse did say he was going to come back to his people in stone. But what are we looking at exactly? One of the first things we learned was that Crazy Horse, the man, never allowed his photograph to be taken. How did they know what Crazy Horse looks like if they didn't have any pictures of him? To me, it's not a lineal likeness, and it was never intended to be and is not. Um, Crazy Horse, the, the statue, represents that essence, if you will, that, that strong leader to a people, not this is how he looked and this is how he would have acted or been or it's it's there to be that strength that rock even literally and figuratively oddly enough crazy horse might seem to be an unlikely candidate to be memorialized in a mountain of stone for more than one reason for one he was demoted he had his title revoked but that's a story for a different episode it involves adultery and love and intrigue and drama but in the end, one of Crazy Horse's great strengths was a fellow named Hornship, his medicine man, which is really like an advisor or a mentor or even a therapist. With Hornship's help, Crazy Horse achieved greatness and represented tribal sovereignty and bravery worthy of eventual memorialization in stone and band names in the early 1970s. Crazy Horse and Hornship had similar stories in that they were kind of both oddballs in their communities. They didn't have a lot of friends and they weren't very sociable people, but they really complemented each other. And Hornship really helped Crazy Horse to fill and be the man that he was. Hornship, the medicine man, stone and rock was kind of part of what he needed to help his um, medicine to work. And he used them a lot in the things that he gave to Crazy Horse to help protect Crazy Horse in, in battle. You know, Crazy Horse wore the stone behind his left ear and he wore a stone, a heart stone. It was kind of under his arm. Crazy Horse's horse had a stone in his forelock and behind his left ear. And it was the stones that carried the power to each other. Um, and so because of his connection to it and where his medicine came from, he couldn't put any kind of carving into a stone or he couldn't deface a piece of stone in some way. 
So that was then. One of the great human stories on this continent unfolded. But then decades passed, and eventually along came this current memorializing project. The mountain is the world's largest mountain carving in progress. We have a crew of about 10 to 15 people working on the mountain. High explosives where they're actually taking large chunks, like 700 tons at a time off of the mountain. Um, but right now the focus is on the hand, the outstretched hand, um, and the underneath the horse's mane, which is gonna support that hand. Korchak really truly believed in free enterprise and he thought if this is going to be created, it's going to be created by the people and for the people. He saw what happened with Guts and Borglum in Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore was supposed to be down to the waist, each one of the faces. And after Borglum's passing, the government said, ah, we're not going to fund you anymore. Korchak actually worked on Mount Rushmore for about a year and he really looked up to this man um, and he thought it was a travesty. Sometimes when you get caught up in a project, it kind of snowballs, and then the community joins in, and you end up with something controversial, as controversial, say, as a wooden Indian. Uh, my name is Trevino Brinks Plenty. I'm poet and musician, multimedia artist. Um, I am Minikoji Lakota. I was born in Eagle Butte, South Dakota, on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation in Indian Health Services. Trevino Brings Plenty lives in Portland. He's also Lakota, like Lauren and Mary, but he has a starkly different view about the memorial. He's a songwriter, an author, an artist, and when I asked him what it meant that Crazy Horse had been memorialized in stone and mentioned Dana's question of why Neil Young named his band Crazy Horse, this is what he had to say. Neil Young chose Crazy Horse because the Indians are cool at least from the American perspective, at the time of great change in societal norms. In the 60s, when the baby boomers were looking at other cultures, they turned to this romanticized idea of connecting with nature. They turned to these others, cherry-picked for their own pleasure, appropriating other cultures and belief systems. With Crazy Horse, I mean, a literal translation would be his horses are spirited, and so that's part of that loss in translation is meanings gone. Even within the root language itself, the stories that go along with these names are gone. By coincidence, the night I talked to Trevino, I went to see Neil Young in concert. He just happened to be in my hometown of Portland. It was a big stadium, but there wasn't much on stage in the way of set. Actually, there was nothing except for the musicians, their instruments, and one large wooden Indian. Later, I asked Trevino how he felt about that. Just like complex questions have equally or more complex answers, same thing with humans. Our story is so much bigger than just the branding name. So in order to, say, like, tell the story of Crazy Horse, we need to get the context. You have to do the research, and it's going to take work, but the reward is definitely worth it. On the issue of the stone memorial being built in honor of Crazy Horse in South Dakota, coming back to that for a second, let's just say that Trevino Brings Plenty is not a big fan. He likened it to a lower back tattoo on the state of South Dakota. 
He thinks of it as bad art. But aside from that, Trevino and a few others that we've talked to feel that this huge undertaking desecrates an area that is sacred because of the native creation stories and spiritual practices. So what does happen when a Lakota person dies? Before, we had scaffolds and everyone's bodies were above ground. Maybe like six feet tall, poles, or sometimes placed in trees. You mourn for four days, the immediate family, and then your extended family come together to help that grieving process. After that, you mourn for a year. You take that year every day, you spend time with the deceased in your mind to make sure they make it to the spirit world that you don't hold them here on this planet forever. So you want to help them go into the spirit world. So every day is that prayer that comes along, that honoring plate that you put out of food or whatever that is that you want to symbolize that. And you have to be in a positive space in order to help your dead relative go to the spirit world. And then after the year is done, come back together and you do a giveaway, which you buy gifts for the community. And you say to the community and say to yourself, we're done mourning. Memorials are about your timeline, but also how it fits into other people's lives and society as a whole. So in that process of me learning this practice, I had to get information from other people of how, how do I do this? What happens if I have this honor plate of food, put it out overnight for the, the spirit to come and eat? They don't need that much food, just like little bits. What happens if I take that and eat it myself? So I asked that from an elder. They said, well, yeah, you can do that. Don't swallow it. If you do that, notice that after the spirit has eaten the food and you eat it, there's no flavor to it. I haven't tried it, but for me, doing the practice for a year was, it was good to be meditative for a while and then go about your day in a good space. Like other humble Lakotas that we talk to, Trevino has disdain for any conversation about leaving a legacy or how he will be remembered. In order for me to be alive right now, I need to do as much as I can in terms of art and political thought and creative thought that hopefully inspires other people. If memorializing has some aspect to the cultural practice, one aspect could be the perspective of seven generations and so that perspective of thinking beyond your own timeline that maybe that might be some kind of memorialization of people ideas place language trying to carry that forward but having the forethought of what are you going to leave behind when you are no longer there to give information for it if all that came out of this was a sculpture he said what a failure that would be you know and, and that's where the, the university and the museum and the eventual medical center will come in. It's about the humanitarian effort. It's using art as social justice, how to change community, how to um, impact community. And, you know, being here in the Black Hills which is kind of controversial in itself. There's such a separation between the native and non-native people here in, in this area. And if by building a colossal sculpture <laughs> can bring those people together and and they can have a conversation with each other whereas they may not have had a conversation I, I think that was Korchak's vision and thought you know let me just put this big thing in front of you and make everybody talk about it right so 
in art, I think is always the best place to have those conversations that you normally wouldn't have with somebody. You can put people in front of something that, and they can both decide that they don't like it. But now they're talking when they wouldn't have talked before. Yeah, I think that's what Core Talk was doing. Uh, it's still doing. I lived in San Francisco for 15 years or so, and one nearby suburb just south of the city always made me scratch my head. Colma. They call it the city of the dead. Why do they call it that? Um, because there's millions of people buried there. Why there? It's what's called a necropolis. Necropolis? <laughs> there's some kind of economy at work that makes it a place where people get buried. So that's why they call it the city of the dead. My name is Alice McEvich, and I lived in Cobo 65 years. Alice is 95 years young. We met her when we decided to visit the Colma Chamber of Commerce Museum. She works there, and she greeted us at the front desk. She helped design the T-shirt. says, Colma, a great place to be alive. The cemetery not only were filled up, but the land was so valuable. And the cemeteries became places where all kinds of crimes were committed. They were very run down. And it took years because we moved here in 1946. And we walked up uh, to the cemetery just to see what they were like. And they were still exhuming the bodies, you know. You can imagine it was a huge job. Come on, come on, leave before I Coma, Coma, the city of the dead is thriving. Yeah, Coma, Coma. Why would they even want cemeteries? You shouldn't ask me that because I've never even run a funeral. <laughs> you must have seen thousands of funerals. I mean, you are the face of the Coma Museum here. No tombstone, no funeral. Is it because you've worked on it so long, and so now you're getting to learn what you don't like about them? Are you... I go to them, but I'm not going to have one. My husband didn't have one, and I'm going to be cremated. <laughs> when you live a certain length of time, there's so few people left who know you or remember you, but just my immediate family, you know, and, and uh, uh, well, I just don't seem to feel that it's necessary. <laughs> But here, here you are in the midst of, of, of a city. I know, I know. Yeah, and I even have favorite tombstones in the cemeteries and things like that. But if you look around at the vast amount of grave, I mean, flowers that are out there, the cost of them and everything. But I, I, I look at it, they're beautiful. I love to walk through the cemeteries. They're like parks. I always think, oh, all this money might be doing better things than putting flowers on the grave. <laughs> I never questioned them why it was so important, but I think most people still have funerals. They still have a memorial service, you know, which is very nice. I don't mind that I don't have a grave for them to visit or anything. I have my name in, in different places, you know. What do you mean by you have your name in different places? Well, I always say that everybody should have their name someplace. Where will your name be? Uh, 
I was a veteran of World War II. I was in the Navy, sort of a pioneer. <laughs> and my name is in the military associations that I belong to. They have records, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, I have written a number of things for my children and grandchildren, and the teacher is so enthused about what I wrote as sort of a vanishing species now. Uh, she actually put it in the library of the Northeastern University in Tulsa. So it's in my uh, story, my life of the Navy has in uh, a little booklet in the library. So that's nice. You're in the middle of an in-person, in-depth investigation into why we memorialize. You're listening to Rome Schooled. We are gathered here today to celebrate the life of Paul Runyon Turner, who entered into eternal life on Thursday, August 6th of this year. With the flag already in place at half-mast, we will start the ceremony with our national anthem. We are at a funeral just outside of Philadelphia. I think most of us have been to events like this. People dressed in black at a formal funeral. There's usually insects in the background or rain falling. Maybe distant traffic competes with or adds context to what the preacher or the family member is saying. In our case, his name was Paul. And as with most funerals, there's the formal funeral, which sounds something like this. Now for the invocation. Heavenly Father, we entrust our brother and friend to your mercy. Give him happiness and peace forever. Welcome him now into paradise, where there will be no more sorrow, no more weeping or pain, but only peace and joy with Jesus, your Son, and the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. Now, according to his friends, you couldn't say that Paul was a religious man. The God stuff and the prayer in the formal funeral is more ritual and cultural. As best as we can tell from talking to his friends, Paul's beliefs and his community, and indeed his family, at the time of his death anyway, could best be defined by this large group of friends, co-workers, and regulars at a bar called McShay's. And it's this neighborhood tavern that hosts his other memorial, the informal one, the one my daughters call the bar funeral, and it's quite and different sounding. Have a great time, have some drinks, have something to eat. Listen to some music. I hope you get up and dance, because this first band is incredible. For people like Paul, who have a double memorial like this, which is actually not unusual, it's a chance for the people who were friends with the deceased late in their life to fill some of the gaps in that person's story. This double memorial or double funeral allows the daytime people and the nighttime people, and I say those with quotes around them because everyone knows the deceased from a different context, to get together and complete the story of the person's life that they're remembering, where all those different contexts come together, insiders and outsiders, family and friends, and the past and the present. It's all connective tissue around the memorial, and it all fills the gaps. 
I did not know any of his past family stuff. I only knew, you know, he talk, would talk about his military service a little bit. Not, you know, most people that were in Vietnam wouldn't, don't really like, delve into it. But he told me a little this, a little that, and then he used to tell, you know, he would tell me about the railroad, and that's what we talked about, and everyday stuff. Paul would always not, like, tell me everything all at once. He would tell to me in segments, and so they filled in some holes that I, those gaps that I didn't, I didn't have, uh, they feasted all together. Pretty much everybody agrees that Paul would have loved this, but it's not what he asked for. I think Friday's memorial service was actually perfect because he deserved it, but he would not have asked for that kind of memorial. He would just say, oh, leave me alone. I'm just a passing fancy in a midnight's dream. Everyone all the time would tell him how much they loved him and how great he was, and, and he would say, no, 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 no. I'm just a passing fancy in a midnight's dream. But that's not, not at all who he was, and I think this is the way it has to happen. It has to be a party, it has to be everyone loving him and talking about him and telling stories about him, keeping him fresh in their minds. And he had some veterans charities he loved, he loved animals, and so we're going to be supporting those too. So This could, I think this could be a, a yearly thing, this uh, like Pauly Palooza type of thing, because it's, it's a fundraiser. No one is saying that Paul would have wanted there to be a fundraiser. Nobody is saying that he wanted to save the world or have his memory live on in some sort of a philanthropic sense. And yet, nobody has a problem with this happening. Maybe Paul would have just wanted us to sit around and listen to some of his old jokes. Everybody says he had a lot of jokes. Um, phew, so many. The, I, the only, what just came to mind for whatever reason is, you heard about the guy with five penises? And, and no, and say, his pants fit like a glove. And, that, and then he would do his trademark laugh. I know he always would say that, you know, have a big party or whatever. Like, when I'm dead, just roll me up and smoke me, you know? Like, you know what I really want? I really would just want my, my ashes in a chock full of nuts coffee can sitting behind a bar at McSafe. I think he liked the can because it says it's heavenly on it. Small print. He was cleaning the joint, you know, uh, McShay's, and um, he felt like his life was unimportant. I mean, I didn't know until I met his older friends um, from where he grew up. You know, he never knew who his dad was, and he was kind of passed around his, um, his aunt and some other people in the neighborhood. And I don't think he ever really um, felt like he belonged somewhere. And I think that's why I found it special, you know, love for him, you know? He didn't have that tightness with his own family, so he found it in the community, which I think is kind of a beautiful thing. So one of the gaps being filled through this memorial by Paul's family and friends has to do with the reason that Paul never felt important. And he certainly made comments that suggested that a big memorial would be a conceit. And, and I guess nobody wants to be Napoleonic in how they go out of the world and dictate from the grave. But there is something in which people want to be remembered, and they want to have those gaps filled. We have a friend who has thought a lot about memory. He has a podcast called Memory Palace. He lives in Southern California. His name's Nate DeMeo. I think this is a fundamental drive. You know, I think so much of what we do in terms of professionally, so much of what we do in terms of child rearing is to make a mark. We want to be seen um, by others and want to be recognized um, as valid people. 
as, as on some level simply not alone, um, to be credited for the things that we feel um, we deserve being credited for, you know, our good deeds, our professional achievements. And I think there's a little bit of like a materialistic kind of crass take on that, that, um, you know, that a life unrecognized or, or life, you know, unmemorialized, you know, on a larger scale um, wasn't worth living, but that's a silly thing to think. I think fundamentally we are creatures uh, alone. We need to connect with the people around us to simply make order out of things. And so to have a memorial, to have you know, people speaking kind words about us at a funeral, you know, to have a plaque on a building or you know, a plaque on a park bench is simply like a concretization of that drive that we have. And I have nothing but the utmost respect for that drive. I think that what I do with the Memory Palace, my podcast, I think is, goes to this question, like, should we remember, memorialize, credit more? Um, when a lot of people kind of uh, ask me um, why I do what I do with the podcast, I think that they expect my answer to be that I think that something along the lines of there are great lost, forgotten stories that, that deserve to be remembered. And I'm not necessarily sure that's true. You know, I think that there's so much, you know, on a daily basis that is contemporary that we are not, you know, connecting with so many peoples in our own communities that we aren't seeing. And so, you know, do we really need to know about things that have come and gone? And I don't know if we necessarily do. Even though it is what I do, I am memorializing the forgotten and memorializing the unpreviously memorialized often. Um, I don't know that necessarily that is a necessary project, um, but it is one I enjoy. It's mostly uh, necessary to me personally in that I find that connecting with the stories of other people um, kind of helps me keep my story straight, <laughs> helps me what to kind of know what to ask for um, in the world, helps, helps keep my head on straight at times. I do think that, that for families uh, in particular, I think that there's real value in remembering um, the people who went before them. Um, I just think that often um, when you're trying to sort out who you are and who you want to be, um, looking toward your immediate past is often really helpful. And so in that regard, mostly I would like it to be said of me um, that I was a good guy, that I was kind, uh, that I was present when people were speaking with me and that I was empathetic. And I think if I can be remembered that way, um, that will be enough. I think this show is a little too serious. <laughs> really? That's a good observation. What makes you say that? Well, because it's all about dead people. Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's pretty serious. Um, should we throw in a little gratuitous comedy in our show about dead people? Um, yeah. What do you think we should put in there? I don't remember that. Um, where? it was the one where we made up different tra-la-la-boom-dee. Ah, the tra-la-la-boom-dee songwriting contest, yes. Do you remember the the entries into that contest? Um, oh, um, yes. What, what was my entry? Tra-la-la-boom-dee. I'll take your youth away. I'll leave you, I mean, I mean... I'll leave you old and sad. You'll be as old as that. 
Okay, but that was not the winning entry, uh, was it? Ow. Uh, uh. You want us to tell you the winning entry? Yeah, well, who won? Okay. Oh, one, uh, two. Oh, boy. Oh, one, two, three, four. Tra la la boom yay. All fart and fart away. I'll leave you standing there in just a cloud of farts. Uh, yeah. How many times do you think you sung that when we were... In Wyoming, or a million, something like a million. And it made Dad laugh until it never, never stops being funny. I think it's because you violate the rhyme scheme at the end. There's the unexpected ending. And you were, were you conscious of that when you were writing it? No, I was just like, uh, I'm not sure if this is gonna win because it's not much rhyming, but it will probably make Daddy laugh. Hmm. Well, you were right, and there's something about the end of that song that makes me think about end of life Just and pulls the trigger and <laughs> pulls the trigger and uh, it it also reminds me that we should get back to the business of this episode so here's a question when you pass on do you want everybody in the world to hear about your difficulties do you want them to hear about the stuff that didn't go right for you or was challenging now of course they say that there's a lesson to be learned in every life but i never hear people saying Please make sure that when I'm dead, everybody gets a list of the things that I did wrong. Get them together and make sure they know that my life was not the blueprint for success or happiness. In our ramblings and discussions with people anyway, we couldn't find that type of a dying wish. But all this said, at every memorial and every funeral, it seems, there's always somebody whose role it is to cast the patina of nostalgia and sentimentality aside and cast their own dose of reality into the proceedings. For some reason, these are always my favorite ones. It's not schadenfreude. I don't want to hear any dirt about the deceased. But I feel like, along with all the celebration, some part of me really wants there to be some kind of lesson. It's corny, but something needs to emerge out of the dirt, like a mushroom after the rain. I told you it was corny. Paul was really good had fallen down. When we were kids, he managed to find the only patch of ice that still existed in April. Slipped on it, broke his leg. As we got older, Paul found new ways of falling down. But he always managed to get back on his feet and start over again. Paul would have really loved all of this today. Thank you all for being here to honor him and share his memories. <clears throat> Finally, in 1968, when Paul came home from Vietnam, he gave me this lighter with an inscription on the back. If you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. We love you, Paulie, and we'll miss you forever. You are listening to Rome Schooled, our first episode. It's kind of a dark horse topic. That's memorialization. That last piece was a funeral, the very tail end of which brought a sobering dose of reality into the way that everybody was memorializing this guy, Paul. I want to switch gears now and introduce you to somebody else who works in the industry. 
It's not his job to make sure that we remember people in a realistic light or really make too much of a memorial at all. He's more of a peacekeeper and a beautifier of the deceased, but I'll let him speak for himself. Okay, now. All right, Charles J. Mancini. I'm a, a Pennsylvania funeral director. Uh, <laughs> you want me to tell you how I became a funeral director? I was in high school. My father was a plumber, and I heard my father tell my mother, your son's graduating in June, pack his lunch, he's going on the plumbing trucks with his brother, his two brothers. So I told my mom, Mom, I'm going in the Air Force with Jimmy, Louie, and uh, Frankie. I'm not going to go on the plumbings. So my second oldest brother, prior to the Second World War, he had helped a funeral director part-time. So he takes me to his funeral home. Nice, it's pretty. He's sitting in a chair, smoking a cigarette, white shirt, black tie. I said, that look too bad. He said, that's all you have to do. I said, that's fine. I took the test at Temple University, and I passed. And I started, and I took to it like a duck on water. He said, it was just, I just loved it. And then uh, later on, I bought the funeral home at 1233 Ritter Street, and I opened that in 1970. And I've been here ever since. It's, it's, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You're on call constantly, and you go out on calls, you go at the middle of the night, you go anytime, anytime the person passes away, and you have about 12, 15 hours to get that person, to get into the funeral power, to get embalmed. Because if not, blood uh, coagulates, then you have problems, you have a lot of problems. I take care of mostly all the cadavers that come in, the people who passed away. Um, we handle them all, and we do whatever we have to do to help the people. And then you get some that start fighting. <laughs> I've had families that fought, I mean, really fighting and, and hitting one another really bad. And uh, But it happens. Uh, you try to break it up, and if you can't break it up, you call the cops. And then and the police come, and they, they handle it. Uh, sometimes one wants to buy this casket, and the other one wants to buy that casket, and they go fighting about it, or, or the uh, clothing, uh, anything of that nature. Uh, it's basically some want to want to handle the whole thing, and they don't want the other kids involved, you know. So it's uh, you got to be careful, and you got to be how you, you got to handle the people like they're kids, you know. You, this is what we do. This is how we do it. Do all the paperwork here and do all the embalming in the back, dressings, makeup. The only thing I don't do is woman's hair. <laughs> that's, that's somebody's. <laughs> I have to call somebody in to, to do the, the hair for the ladies. I uh, particularly don't like viewings for myself. My wife has passed away and she didn't want to be viewed. So we just took her right to the church and we had the people come in and you know, we had a big picture out there and uh, that's all she wanted. She didn't want to be viewed. Uh, all I want to do is, is a little bit of embalming, not, not the whole thing, not, you know, uh, I want to go in my uh, khakis or, you know, and I, I want to close. Some people they need it and some people don't. You know, personally, uh, I, I don't want the kids to, uh, I just want them to continue on, uh, take care of their own families and, and, and do that. 
probably I would have something said, you know, thanking everybody for coming and, and you know, like leave it up to the children to do it, especially uh, my son. So after all this, is it all worth it? The casket, the tombstone, just these two aspects actually of a funeral average about 6,000 bucks. The viewing, the ceremony, luncheon, catering, the graveyard plot, etc., end up more than doubling this. That much money for a stone in the ground with their favorite things on it, um, it isn't really the person. A person is deceased, doesn't know what's going on. Charles says it's different for each person, but like so many people we talk to, all of this presentation, all of this production is not for the deceased. This intimately executed, expensive effort is for the family. They'll stand in front of the casket for, for maybe an hour and just look and look and cry and, and you know, kiss the hand. We don't let them kiss the other makeup because it's, it could come off, you know. So it's, uh, it's, it's just what we do. One last stop in this, our first episode of Rum Schooled. This is the story of a community that came together to memorialize a woman named Tisha Helgerson. She sang in a band called Amelia, one of Portland's favorite bands. The girls and I have made our way back to our hometown and have dropped them off at their mothers. I'm gonna go by myself to talk to Deb Helgerson about this memorialization project that brought together a lot of musicians, including me, and also built a house, or at least made it available for those who really need it. My name is Deb Helgerson. I live in Portland, Oregon. And I lost my daughter, Tisha June, to leukemia just a little short of four years ago. She left her home all paid for and all furnished. And after the first couple of months of just wondering what I would be doing with her house, I, I was in her kitchen, I remember, and it was like she just talked to me. She just said, well, you're just going to bring people in and let them live here. <laughs> and then it became an epiphany that when she was going through treatment, we had to think about going across the United States and living in a city we didn't know and finding housing and that was so overwhelming for me to think about. That's where the epiphany came that I could allow other people in that same situation to come here and live and she had talked with me about wanting to have some kind of a good works fund where we could just do things for people. And she'd also reached out to my folks' church and uh, spoke with someone there about whether or not they would set up a nonprofit. So that's what we did. Because the house is paid for, I can just have people stay as long as they need to. We've had six families so far. It really is a place where they come and they feel supported and um, it's a, a very healing place. And they're, they're new people. They've never met her, but they know her 
by the time they've left this house and they're grateful to her. Tisha Hogerson was 42 years old. And like I said, she was a musician. I was lucky enough to play in her and Scott's band for a few years. When she died, there was a big funeral in a church, a formal one. Hundreds of people came and dozens of musicians sang songs to pay their respects. But that wasn't the end of the musical part of the memorial. Standing in the kitchen with all of these musician friends, I'd invited people over a week after she'd passed away. And she left me a book, a huge binder of songs and lyrics and scraps of paper that she'd written on and voice memos and humming little tunes. And I thought, I need to have her friends, these wonderful musicians, finish these works and we'll put it out and it'll be a tribute CD and if we can sell a few it'll help support the house but it was just important to take something that she worked on and that she loved so dearly and make it final and the songs on the CD there's one where you hear her in the kitchen and her dog is lapping water and she's cooking and I know that she heard a song going on in her head so she just clicked on her her uh, little recorder to just capture that. It is what it is. And then it there's one in the bathtub where she's drumming. You can hear her drumming with the water. And her voice is not good. But I know that she had just gotten out of two horrific weeks in the hospital recovering from this terrible pneumonia. And still, in her bathtub, she was still hearing sounds. And the lyrics on that, I think, were um, sort of telling. Sort of like, you're going to go back to the home where you belong. And that's exactly what happened. It's not That's some of the music posthumously released as a memorial to Tisha Helgerson. She's the singer on that, and if you want to hear more about that project, visit TishaJune.com. Her name is spelled T-E-I-S-H-A. So we drove, we drove a long ways to get to some of these places, and we're stuck out here in the middle of nowhere driving 3,000 miles to talk to some of these people. Do you think it was worth it? Yes. Yeah. 
Why? Um, because um, it's really fun and you can see animals like antelope when we went to Devil's Tower. And so at some of the antelope, places, I mean. Ah, cantaloupe. One of the greatest things about summer. Just make sure you've got deer whistles so you don't hit any when you're out on the highway. Thanks so much for listening to our first episode of Rome School. To put gas in the tank, we are looking for a sponsor. So if you know someone who values curiosity and the kind of learning you can only get from in-person conversations, put them in touch with us. Or go to our website where you'll find all sorts of other material, including a great slideshow that goes along with each episode. So you can put faces to the voices you've been hearing. There's also a donate button there. If you want to buy us a tank of gas or a meal, a bridge toll, if you want to get really fancy, a set of tires, or as was the case on our first outing, a complete engine rebuild, which I will report is a very expensive way to learn the following lesson. Do not ever buy a cute little Toyota Winnebago from a hippie who's living in it in the desert without first checking the compression on all the cylinders. Seriously, lesson learned. But do go to the website. You can ask us questions there and see this great slideshow. Our website is romeschooled.com. My email is jim at romeschooled.com. I want to thank all the people who took the time to sit down and talk with me, my daughters, and my co-producers to make this episode, including Alice in Colma, Charlie in Philadelphia, Lisa in Chicago, all the people at Paul's funeral, Deb Helgerson in Portland, the expert and inspirational leaders at Crazy Horse National Monument and Cultural Center, my friend Trevino brings plenty, Nate DeMaio, who has a quality, addictive podcast called Memory Palace. Check it out. But most of all, I want to thank my daughters, Dana and Vern, who inspired the questions, topics, and came along for the ride. Rome School is written and produced by me, Jim Brunberg, with invaluable production assistance, design, concept, and website development by Lydia Ritchie. Ben Landsberg and I made the music under the name Wonderly, except for the opening and closing songs, which were both Keisha Helgerson originals that were given to me as voice memos and became what you heard as part of that musical memorial, which is available at CD Baby. I hope you keep listening to this show as it grows, develops, changes, learns, and I hope that you also have a child in your life or somebody with a child's curiosity who asks you a question someday that is best answered with Let's Go Find Out.